Good evening, everyone. Good evening. If you would, open up your Bibles to Acts, the first chapter. Acts chapter 1, that's where we're going to begin momentarily. We will be in the Bible just a whole bunch and in a bunch of different places. And so you'll be helped, I think, if you follow along in that passage and all the other passages that we'll be looking at for the duration of our study this evening. Acts chapter 1 is where that's going to start. As you're turning there and as you're getting settled in for this portion of our worship, I would just say how great it is to see everybody here tonight. So glad to be able to be in your midst. I know that there's lots of other things that you could be doing on a Friday night. I think high school football is probably still going on. I know that the Major League Baseball playoffs are happening or I don't know, any number of things you could be doing. But the fact that you chose to spend your Friday night here with uh, people of God, the people who are seeking after God's things, I think just says something about you and about what's most important to you. And I want you to know just how encouraging that is to me personally and how encouraging I think that ought to be for all of us as we look around this room tonight. Thank you so much for the invitation to be here. I'm glad to be here and have all my family with us, uh, with me tonight and, uh, and to be in full health because the last time that I was here, I was very, very sick and I did not sound good. I actually went back and revisited the recordings of that and it was just, it really was embarrassing. So God bless you all for sticking in there with me during that weekend, but I'm just really glad to be here tonight at full strength and full health and to be able to kind of wrap this series up. I'm batting last in this thing, which means I kind of had the challenge of having to kind of work around all the other guys who went before me, some of the subjects and the things that they chose to speak on. But I do hope tonight that what we will do is we will go out with a bang, and I think we'll be helped in a tremendous way if we begin together in Acts chapter 1. Read with me if you will. I'm reading here about those apostles in Acts chapter 1. This is verse 10. In Acts 1 and in verse 10, we're told, Acts 1 verse 10, that while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Every culture in every generation has its stories, its legends of a great king that has gone away, but who will one day return to make things right for his people. In the stories of Sherwood Forest and Robin Hood, it is King Richard the Lionhearted who is away. In Disney's tale, The Lion King, it is young Simba who must grow and fulfill his destiny as the king, the king of the jungle. In Tolkien's trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, it is Aragon, who for so long has been away but triumphantly returns to fight for his people. But there is one story that is more than just a story. It is more than just a legend. It is the story of a great king who is away, but who will return one day in power and in majesty. He will return for his subjects, and he will fully and finally destroy every single foe. And what is amazing about that great and true story is that its final chapter has yet to be written. In fact, what's even more awesome is that when we talk this evening about the return of the King, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, that final chapter could be written in your lifetime. That final chapter could include every person sitting in this building tonight. That final chapter could be written tonight. Which is why this evening, I'd like for us to conclude this series of studies this week by talking a little bit about the return of King Jesus, the second coming of Christ. It is one of the central truths in all of Scripture mentioned here in Acts chapter 1 
and mentioned repeatedly in the letters that are sent to the Corinthians and to the Thessalonians, as well as in some of those great visions in the book of Revelation. It's even a central truth in Jesus' own parables. Again and again and again, the Bible tells us that the king will return. When he came the first time, he was a babe in a manger. And very few even knew that the king was here. But when he comes again, every eye will see him. All will know that the king has come. When he was here before, he spoke the words of eternal life, and yet not very many understood that they were being addressed by the king. But when he returns, every ear will hear his voice. Even the dead will respond to the voice of the king. When he was here before, they mocked him. They ridiculed Him. They spat upon Him. They crucified Him. But when the King returns, every knee will bow. The King is coming. And my task this evening is to convince you, first of all, of the absolute certainty of that. And furthermore, my task this evening is to impress upon you the importance of being ready for that critical moment. And in doing that tonight... I want to explore a little bit about what the king is not coming to do. And then I want to talk a little bit about what the king is coming to do. But really, most of all tonight, what I want to do is I want to push you very hard to think very soberly about the reality, the possibility that King Jesus could come in your lifetime. That could happen at any moment. Now maybe we would begin by talking about what I would consider kind of the negative side of the Christ's return. Some of the things that will not be a part of the second coming of Jesus. Because there certainly has been all kinds of wrong information, all kinds of false ideas that have been put out there in the religious world. And that's just caused lots of confusion about the coming of the King. Let me just tell you first of all that Jesus is not coming at any date or any time that any man can determine. Of course, all kinds of date setting has been done all throughout history, despite the miserably bad luck that date setters have always had. Their success rate at guessing the return of the king is at zero percent, and and it's actually falling, if that's even numerically possible. For example, the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, he set the return of Christ three different times. Finally, he just decided that Jesus must have come invisibly and nobody saw him. I wish I was making that up. I'm not. Back, of course, in the year 999 A.D., you know that a lot of people had to be thinking, oh man, when the calendar rolls over to the year 1000, Jesus is going to come, right? We saw that in 1999. Remember all the hubbub about Y2K? All kinds of hysteria about that? Going to be the end of the world. Jesus is going to come in the year 2000. And Jesus didn't come. One NASA scientist, he wrote a wonderful little book. It was entitled, 88 Reasons Why the World Will End in 1988. Ironically, he wrote a sequel. It was titled, 89 Reasons Why the World Will End in 1989. You can probably guess that guy's credibility was shot after those books. Would you look in your Bible with me in 1 Thessalonians 5? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, let's just see if the Bible gives us any kind of clues about the date of Christ's return. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul addresses the time of the Lord's coming when he says this to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5 beginning in verse 1. He says, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. 
For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Love that metaphor there of a thief in the night because that really just puts to rest firmly and fully any and all all attempts to try and set a date for the return of Jesus. No one knows when the King is coming. Jesus will come at an hour that we least expect. Furthermore, though, you should know that Jesus is not coming to rapture anyone. That's probably the most popular end-time scenario that we hear about today. You sometimes will even see bumper stickers that will say, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. Lots of people love to talk about and to think about the rapture. The idea is, is that as times get worse, and we look around at our world right now and we get to thinking, well, it doesn't seem like it can get much worse than it is today. But as times get worse, that the Lord is going to suddenly and mysteriously just start... Just snatching, just just snatching all the Christians off the face of planet earth. After which there will be this time of terrible tribulation and beast and the Antichrist and then the Lord is going to return after that for 1,000 years. You should know about all that. That not only does the Bible never use the term rapture, probably more importantly, it never even teaches the concept. Because central to the concept of the rapture is the idea of two separate resurrections. A resurrection of the righteous dead at the time of the rapture, and then a resurrection of the wicked dead much later at the time of the Lord's return, kind of the the second return. Yet I want us to see once again, what does the Bible say about all of that? I'm looking in John the 5th chapter now, in John chapter 5. In John 5, these are the words of Jesus Himself. And really, if anybody ought to be able to set the record straight about this stuff, it's going to be Jesus, right? You think Jesus would know a thing or two? Well, I think Jesus does know a thing or two. Look in John 5, I'm reading here in verses 28 and 29. Jesus says this in John 5 and in verse 28. Jesus is speaking to the disciples there. John 5 verse 28. He says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The Bible doesn't teach the rapture because the Bible does not teach this idea of two separate resurrections. The Bible teaches one resurrection where the righteous and the wicked will all be called forth from the grave. You know, maybe the biggest problem with the whole rapture concept is that it's part of a larger theory that says that Jesus is going to return and He's going to set up His kingdom here on planet earth at which time he will begin reigning for 1,000 years. That's part of a big elaborate doctrine known as premillennialism. This sermon tonight is not a sermon on premillennialism, but we will talk about aspects of it here. Premillennialism is the idea that Jesus wanted to set up an earthly kingdom when he was here before, but, but he failed at that. Let me just say that again. That was kind of hard for me to even say. That when Jesus was here the first time, somehow and in some way, He didn't get the job done. So He's going to come back again. He's going to get it another try. He's going to get it right on this second go-round. He's going to come to Jerusalem. He's going to set up shop right there on the literal throne of David. And He's going to reign for a literal 1,000 years. 
course, all kinds of passages from Ezekiel and Daniel and Revelation are all tied and stitched together to formulate this idea of Christ reigning over an earthly kingdom. Once again, what does the Bible actually teach about that? Is Jesus returning to establish a kingdom here on this earth? Look with me in Mark 9. I think this is a helpful passage when you're talking about these ideas. In Mark chapter 9, here's Jesus' own words once again. And He's talking to some of His disciples there. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus speaks about the kingdom. In Mark chapter 9, He had this to say to them. Mark 9 verse 1, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Jesus says that some of those apostles who was living in the first century, they would live to see the kingdom fulfilled. Now my question is, if the kingdom isn't already established, if we are not already living under the reign and the rule of King Messiah, then I just have to wonder, where exactly are these 2,000-year-old geezers? Where are these 2,000-year-old men walking around on the face of the earth? I'd like to meet those guys, wouldn't you? Of course, you realize this already happened. It has taken place. The kingdom has been established in Colossians chapter 1. In Colossians 1, in case there was any doubt about that, what we see here is that Jesus has already established the kingdom, that the church is a big part of that kingdom, it is a spiritual kingdom, and that Jesus is reigning right now. In Colossians chapter 1, I'm reading in verse 13, in Colossians 1 and verse 13, Paul says there that He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I personally am so very thankful that the kingdom isn't going to be established at some undetermined point in the future. I'm so thankful that the kingdom has been established, that it is here, that I can be out of the domain of darkness and be in that marvelous kingdom. I'm thankful for that, aren't you? Aren't you glad Jesus doesn't have to come back and clean up some kind of, you know, unresolved mess that He didn't get fixed the first time? Absolutely not. That's not the Lord that we serve. Jesus did not fail. He is reigning on the throne right now. Lord of lords and King of kings. Now, having said some things here, kind of on the negative side about the return of the King, what that's not going to be about... Maybe we now need to turn our attention to what is the return of King Jesus going to be about. What's some things on the positive side? What is the King coming to do? Well, I would tell you first and foremost that Jesus in returning, He is coming, He is coming to keep His Word. Look in John the 14th chapter with me, please. In John 14, in John 14, Jesus here was once again talking to the disciples, trying to prepare them for His eventual exit from planet Earth. The disciples are maybe kind of rightfully troubled by that news. And so in John 14, Jesus says some words here to try to, to try to calm their fears and to try to ease that transition. In John 14, He says to them in verse 1, He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to Myself that where I am, you may be also. I want you to just focus right in there on verse 3. When Jesus tells us that He will return, He will. Bank on it. 
Count on it. If ever there is such a thing as a sure bet, this is it. When Jesus says something, you can absolutely be certain that He means it and He will fulfill it. In fact, if you don't know anything else about the return of Christ, if you don't even remember anything else about this sermon tonight, I hope you remember this one thing. Jesus is coming because He said so. And when He comes, Jesus is coming to condemn the wicked. I'm looking now for 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul writes very vividly here about the return of the king. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, I'm reading here beginning in verse 7. In 2 Thessalonians 1 and in verse 7, look at the middle of the verse. He says that when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Just mark it down. The second coming marks the end of wickedness and evil and sin. It means the end, a termination of Satan's work and Satan's power and Satan's grip here on this earth. The wicked will be sent to everlasting punishment along with the devil and all of his demons and unholy angels. But you know what? For as much as the second coming means bad things for the wicked, it also means lots of good things for the righteous. Because furthermore in this connection, Jesus is coming. and He is coming to bring immortality and salvation to the saved. I'm looking at 1 Corinthians 15 now. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes some words here to the Corinthians. They had a lot of misunderstandings. They had a lot of misunderstandings about a lot of stuff. And the resurrection and some of the events surrounding that, that was one of the things they had some misunderstandings about. And so Paul writes to them to help them with being more certain about the return of the Lord. He says this to them in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. What a joy that's going to be, isn't it? What a marvelous occasion that will be to be changed, to be clothed upon with immortality, to then get to go and to be with the Lord for all of eternity. i got to tell you, I'm really looking forward to that. And I'm particularly looking forward to that because of the place where we are right now. This place right here where we're living right now, at the return of the king just isn't going to be a very habitable place. Because part of the second coming is the destruction of this world, the material universe as we know it. The return of the king will signal the end of time here upon this earth. I'm looking for Second Peter, the third chapter now. In Second Peter chapter 3, Peter discusses the coming of the Lord. And in particular, this uh, conversation in Second Peter 3 is couched within the context of a lot of people who scoffed at that idea. And in many ways, things have not changed. Here we are you know, nearly 2,000 years later, and things really aren't all that different. There are still people who say, oh, pff, that isn't going to happen. 
Y'all standing around waiting for Jesus to return, talking about that, singing about that, looking for that. That isn't going to happen. Things are still the same, same as they were yesterday, just as they were the day before, and that's the way it's going to be tomorrow, and the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that. Peter writes to these Christians to say, Christian, don't you believe that nonsense? Don't you buy into that? And so he says, and we benefit from this as well, Second Peter 3, verse 8, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Verse 10 now. But the day of the Lord will come. It will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That's pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? That's a fireworks display the likes of which we've never seen before. This world, all that is in it, time as we know it, all of that will be no more when King Jesus returns. Now, I was able to read through all of those passages and make all of those points this evening in a relatively easy manner. I didn't have a whole lot of difficulty with that and... I'm going to trust that many of you didn't have any difficulty with that. If some of this stuff is new to you this evening, hey, I'd be glad to talk about that. I know Brother Greg would be glad to talk about that. Any number of folks here at College View would be glad to talk about that and study about that with an open Bible. But I'm going to guess for, for many of us, this is not new information this evening. I'm sure you've read those verses, you've heard these truths pounded on and described many, many, many times before. Yet, yet what amazes me about that simple set of truths is that in some ways it seems rather cold and rather sterile to us. You know, we digest these facts and we process them mentally and intellectually and we do all that in a rather academic sort of way. And as a result, these truths, they don't really run through us like fire. They don't course through our veins in such a way that it prompts us to make changes. That it, that it spurs us on to greater service and to greater diligence in the kingdom. Which is why I'm going to say to you one more time very powerfully, Jesus is really coming. And that, of course, is the point that Peter is trying to stress as he continues on. Are you still there in 2 Peter chapter 3? Look in verse 11. He continues on after talking about the destruction of this world. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. That is, here's the application now, Christian. You know this is all coming to an end when Jesus comes back. Since this is happening, verse 11, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Why are we not more interested in this? Why do we not talk about this more often? Why does this not motivate our daily activities and choices? Why are we not, verse 13, waiting for the new heavens? There's an eagerness there. We're looking for new heavens and new earth wherein righteousness dwells. I'm convinced that somehow and in some way, we've got to get these truths and we've got to lift them up off of the printed page of the Bible. What we need to do is we need to somehow live these truths. 
Not just listen when they're being taught. Not even just mindlessly nodding along. Yes, 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 that's correct, that's correct. Maybe even giving an amen every now and then whenever these things are preached. No. I'm convinced that what we need to do is we need to get in the Word. You understand what I mean by that? We need to put ourselves inside the Scriptures. We need to think about the second coming of Jesus, not so much in terms of, hmm, I wonder what the tense of the verb there is in the Greek of that word in that verse. No. I'm saying we need to get in the Scriptures, not so much to maybe learn the answer to some kind of false doctrine. Here's my neighbor who believes in premillennialism and the rapture. And, hey, preacher, can you give me some verses that will help me to just you know, clubber them over the head and show them where they're wrong? No. I'm saying to you, we need to think about the return of the King. We need to think about these truths in very personal terms. We need to think about where we could be when Jesus comes again. In fact, the Apostle Paul encourages that kind of thing. Would you look in 1 Thessalonians again? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul writes to these brethren here who had a lot of, once again, a lot of misunderstandings about the return of Jesus. And so Paul wanted to say to them about that. In 1 Thessalonians 4, this is verse 13. In 1 Thessalonians 4 and in verse 13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore... Encourage one another with these words. Have you ever thought about that? you ever maybe sat and daydreamed about that? Have you ever thought about, beginning in verse 16, what that would be like to be living and to then get to see Jesus? Let me see if maybe I can translate that verse for you. I was caught in traffic once again, living in Nashville now. There's plenty of traffic to be found roundabout. I was on my way home, but I-40 was all backed up. It actually was backed up today. And I was trying to get there on time. And that way we could get supper ready and get all cleaned up and ready to go. And ah, traffic was just, it was just a bear. And I was backed up in that traffic and it was really just kind of at a standstill. And I was just certain my wife was going to fuss me out for being late once again. But there I sat, sat there in traffic, all the other cars around me. I could hear the roar of people's engines. I could hear the radio blaring out of the window of certain folks' automobiles. I could see certain things. But then all of a sudden, all of a sudden I heard this, this terrible racket. In fact, as I began to look at my clock, all of a sudden as I looked across the dashboard, I started to see something going on in the sky. And before I knew it, I started to hear terrible sounds like cars crashing into one another. Because cars were piling up, everybody was looking at the sky. People jumping out of their cars and pointing to the sky. I got out of my car and I looked up and then I saw, I saw Jesus. The sky ripped apart and He came descending forth with angels furious and powerful. 
the king, the king had returned. Maybe for a young person, maybe it would be like this. I was sitting in third period English, and the teacher was going on and on about how to conjugate verbs and I wasn't really paying attention. Who cares how you conjugate verbs? That's really kind of a useless skill. I was thinking about that pretty girl that's in my fourth period science class and whether she'd be willing to give me her number. I'd like to text her sometime. And so as I was sitting there just kind of daydreaming about all of that going on through the afternoon, all of a sudden, I heard a terrible sound. In fact, the building of the school, it kind of began to rumble and to shake. And all the other students were jumping up. Everybody's running to the windows. Probably the last thing you ought to do if the building is shaking because the building might start falling and the windows might start crashing. But everybody's wanting to look outside. And all of a sudden, the sky was just a completely different color. And everything was just bathed in this bright white light. And before you knew it, then I saw. I saw the King. Jesus Exactly as I'd been taught in Bible class. Exactly as I'd heard the preacher say. Exactly as I had read in the Bible myself. The king had returned in all his glory. Maybe for a young mother. My wife is in this category right now. We were here the previous time. She was still pregnant with child. But now Gertie is here in the flesh. And she knows all about the importance of putting that baby down for the afternoon nap. Imagine a young mother puts the baby down for the afternoon nap. And all of a sudden she just hears this terrible racket outside. And she begins to think to herself, I tell you what, if it's that neighbor's kid blasting that stereo again, I'm going to talk to his mother about that. But I came to realize this wasn't a regular car stereo sound. This was the kind of booming, thunderous sound that was not unlike anything I'd ever heard here upon the face of this earth. In fact, it was like a trumpet blast. That was otherworldly. And so I went to the door and opened up the door and the world was just bathed in fire and bright light. And I looked to the sky and it peeled apart and angels came pouring out. And before you knew it, there was Jesus descending from the cloud in all His magnificence, the King. The King had returned. How often do we think about that? How often do we think about that? That Jesus could come in our lifetime. That Jesus could come while we're sitting in traffic. Or Jesus could come while we're at school. Or while we're at work. What a moment that would be. Because in one blinding flash, everything would be changed. Have you given that any consideration? everything would suddenly be different the moment that Jesus appears. All of the values that we hold near and dear in our world today, suddenly those things would be turned upside down. They'd be stood on their head. You think about the things that we as humans place value on in this world. You think about money. Our world is all about money. The almighty dollar seems to make the world turn. Our world's all about the pursuit of money and getting money and having money and flaunting money and saving money and spending money and having even more money. Let me ask you this. When the king comes, how much is your money worth then? <laughs> Nothing. Squat. All the money in the world multiplied by ten won't be worth anything when Jesus comes. In fact, the same thing could be said for all the other worldly pursuits. 
that we hold so near and dear and invest time and energy in, whether that's cars or houses or jewelry or clothing or popularity or success or fame or beauty, all of that will be rendered worthless when King Jesus comes. The only thing that will matter, the only thing that will be of value on that day will be crowns of righteousness that the King will dispense. Because in a blinding flash, with a host of angels with fire, things are going to clear up considerably. And that's especially true of this business of sin. You talk about the things that our world enjoys and the things that our world values. Our world loves sin. Our world is all about sin. Our world wants to regularly be involved in sin. And sometimes I think even we as disciples, as Christians, sometimes we get to looking at the world and all the fun that they're having and how much pleasure they derive out of all of that. We kind of get to looking at that maybe a little bit longingly. We get to thinking, I'd kind of like to have a little bit of that. I'd kind of like to try that. I'd like to enjoy some of that stuff. But you know what? When King Jesus comes, when the King returns, there's not going to be anybody who's going to be glad that they were found in sin. Nobody's going to say, Oh, I'm so glad that I was in the middle of sinning when Jesus came. Nobody's going to say when they see the King, Oh, this is just so much better than going to be with King Jesus and to live with Him. Indeed not. No one will say that. No one will even think that thought. In fact, look with me in Revelation, please. In Revelation 6. In Revelation 6, this is one of those great visions from Revelation. And I do believe that contextually this is speaking about the Lord's wrath as it was going to be poured out during the time of the first century, some of the things that were happening then. However, I do believe that as well, what this does is this maybe gives us a little bit of a model, maybe a little bit of a preview, a sneak peek of what things just might look like here on earth when Jesus comes again. Look in Revelation 6, I'm reading here beginning in verse 15. In Revelation 6 and in verse 15, Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they called to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? You stop and think about it now. All those who have mocked Christians, all those who have taunted us for our stand for purity and righteousness, all those who maybe made fun of us for coming to church on a Friday night. What kind of losers are you going to church on Friday night? What will those folks say then when the king comes and in that moment they realize the folly and the vanity and the absolute emptiness and shallowness of their lives, and they realize just how wrong sin was. And maybe I ought to ask as well in that vein, what about those people who almost obeyed the gospel? You know what I'm talking about here? What about those folks who were, they were really giving that some thought? They had really good intentions about that? They kind of maybe even had it squared away in their minds that, Alright, when this happens and this happens, then yeah, eventually I'm going to be baptized. I'm going to become a Christian. I want to get some other things kind of lined out in my life first. I've got some other things I want to do, some other fun that I want to have first. You know, obey the gospel today. No, no, not today, but, but one of these days 
I've got some real big plans about becoming a Christian and serving Jesus. With what regret? With what regret they will behold the King in that moment, realizing that they were so close. They were so near to the kingdom of God, but now, now it is too late. And maybe I ought to ask in connection with that as well, what about those who who used to serve the King? Those who used to be devoted, committed disciples of Jesus. What about Christians who have betrayed their service to the King? What will come of those people? In Hebrews chapter 10, maybe we get a little bit of an idea there. In Hebrews chapter 10, the Bible tells us about the plight of those who turn their backs on the Lord. What can they look forward to when Jesus comes? Well, here's what they can look forward to, if I could use that term. In Hebrews chapter 10, I'm reading here beginning in verse 26. In Hebrews 10 and in verse 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses died without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. How on earth do you face the King when you know in your heart of hearts that you have not been faithful to Him? What kind of stark fear seizes you in the pit of your stomach when you finally see Jesus with your own two eyes and you know that you've not served Him faithfully but you have instead spurned the Son of God? And while I am certain that there will be great calamity, there will be great noise and all kinds of chaos on that day, the kind of noise and ruckus that will be caused by the blast of the trumpet of the archangel. There's going to be the weeping and the wailing of all those sinners who realize that they are doomed for all of eternity. I am certain even in the midst of that sound, there will be another sound. It may be small at first, but I believe that it will grow every second with greater intensity. Because the king will come and what will happen is is he will bring rejoicing to those who are saved. The King comes to save His people once and for all. All we who walked by faith, our faith will become sight in that moment. All we who have had our entire lives shaped by our hope, we will see our hopes realized. All the pain, all the difficulties, all the persecution, all the trials, all the troubles that come with trying to live the Christian life faithfully, all the things that we gave up, suddenly, suddenly all of that will evaporate from our life just like a drop of dew on hot pavement. Look with me in 2 Thessalonians again in chapter 1. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we read earlier verses 7, 8, and 9 that spoke there about the fate of the wicked. Would you notice now though in verse 10, In verse 10 of 2 Thessalonians 1, notice how the righteous are going to respond. Notice the contrast when they see the king. In 2 Thessalonians 1 and in verse 10, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints 
and to be marveled at among all who have believed. All we who believe the King, we will know in that moment that He's come and that He's come for us. He's come for us, His citizens in His kingdom. His children. And so we will rejoice in that day. We will praise the King. We will sing that new song that only the saints can know. Just stop and think about it, Christian. What will be going through your mind when you look up and you behold the spotless Son of God knowing that He's come to take you home? What will be going through your mind? I guess maybe amongst the many things that will probably be going through my mind will be the thought of, I made it. I made it. The Bible was right. I'm so glad that I believed the Word of God. I'm so glad that I trusted Jesus. I'm so glad that I rendered my obedience to the Gospel. I'm so thankful that I was baptized for the forgiveness of my sins. I'll never be tempted again. I'll never shed a tear again. I'll never experience pain again. Those and a thousand other thoughts will go racing through our minds when in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. And there were those who lived in New Testament times who understood that. In fact, I think maybe in many ways they understood it better than than even you and I do today. Christians who under the intense pressure of persecution, real persecution, they looked forward to, they longed for that grand day. Brothers and sisters in Christ who lived during the time of the New Testament, who always, as they went about their daily affairs, as they went to their jobs, as they tended to their families, as they went to school and went to the market and all that stuff, as they did all their business, they always kind of kept one eye toward the sky in hopes that maybe today, maybe today's the day that the King is going to come and take us home. They thought about it. In fact, they talked about it regularly with one another. We know that because they had a word for it. Would you look with me finally in 1 Corinthians 16? In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, at the end of that chapter, near the end of this letter, these disciples often said goodbye with a very special word. And Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 16 and in verse 22. Paul concludes that letter by saying, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Notice now, Maranatha. Which means, O Lord, come. Come, Lord Jesus. It was the watchword of the New Testament church. As those Christians longed for, they hastened the king's return so that he would come and deliver them from this life and they could go to the next life. Come, Lord Jesus. All I can say is that we are closer to that day right now than we've ever been before. And all I can tell you is that when the Lord does come, There will be people who with ashen face, they will turn to the sky and they will have terror in their hearts because they realize they are not ready. They are not prepared for the return of the King. But I'll tell you what I'm going to do. 
I tell you what I'm determined. I am determined on that bright and glorious morning or afternoon or evening, whenever it may be. It may even be tonight. I am determined to greet my King with joy in my heart because I have served Him faithfully and I know that He's come to bring me home to the Father. And so we sing from time to time in that grand old hymn, Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Friend, the King is coming. And when He does, will it be well with your soul? If indeed Jesus were to return tonight, would you be ready? Would you be able to say, Maranatha? If the answer to that question is no, then I am imploring you. And in fact, we're going to sing a song here in just a moment to implore all of us to get ready. This is the time. And the reason this is the time is because this is the only time that we know that we have. This is the only time that we're guaranteed. We're only guaranteed this moment right now. All things are ready. I I mean, Gertie was up here looking at the water earlier, and I glanced over and got, look, we got a water pool just ready for anybody who's never been baptized into Christ. You can make the good confession that you believe Jesus is God's Son. Maybe you've just been sitting on the dime, and for whatever reason, whatever excuse you've maybe had, whatever kind of rationalization you've had, you've just been putting that off and putting that off. Stop it. Just stop it. Let's make tonight the night that you are plunged in and under that water, united with Jesus in the waters of baptism. All your sins will be washed away. You come up out of that water, you're a Christian. You're part of the family of God. And you're now ready for when Jesus comes. Brother or sister, if you're not living right, I hope this lesson this evening will have had just as much a powerful impact on you to examine your walk with Christ. Are you living as you should as a subject of the King? If you're not, this is the time to fix that. Maybe that's something you just take care of right where you're sitting. You just you ask God for forgiveness and you confess those things to Him right there. Maybe you want to do that in a public way. You want to call upon the family here to pray for you and to encourage you in some other way. Whatever we can do to help you to serve the Lord or to serve Him in a better way, this is your moment. This is your time. Do something about it right now while we stand, while we sing.